the goal of the Cuban government is to make anyone who dares to do political art fail miserable in life and career. I also feel that it's my duty to be as successful as possible, not because I care, but as a way to tell younger people, if I did it, you, you can do it. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Art Persist podcast, a series by Bossler Arts offering a glimpse into the life of artists and activists from all over the world, here to share their stories with you, the listener. My name's Georgia and in this episode we interview Tanya Bruguera, a Cuban artist and activist whose performances and installations examine political power structures and their effect on injustice. Her provocative works explore the ways in which art can be applied to everyday political life, tackling global issues of power, migration, censorship and repression in ways that turn viewers into citizens, seeking to transform social effect into political effectiveness. For Bruguera, art is a platform where new political potentials can be tested, performed and realised. I've been such a big fan of Tanya throughout my whole life. She's really had a huge impact on my outlook and, and my way of understanding how art can be used as a tool of social change. And in this episode, we really delve into all of that. We talk about her early life and upbringing and how she began to use art as a form of activism, along with her painful forced exile from Cuba. Hope you enjoy. Tanya, at the beginning of every episode that we do, we always ask artists the same question. But I want to change it a little bit for you because I was actually listening to an interview you did a while ago and you talked about something that resonated with me so much which is this idea of seeing an artwork and getting energy from it getting this kind of passion to do something from it so normally we ask people about a first work that inspired them but I want to ask you about whether you can recall the first time you you looked at an artwork and you felt like that energy to do something well um I think it was not a one artwork per se but it was the environment mm. for, that happened in Cuba in the 80s in the visual arts and theater and dance and music because for the first time I felt some sort of electricity in the air mm. and I didn't recognize why I was feeling that way every time I went to a show or went to see experimental theater or you know or go to a reading of poems or novel mm. and uh, the reason was and I learned when I lost it that mm. the reason was freedom mm. that I felt um, without knowing what it was because in Cuba we didn't know what it was and I was very very young I was mm. uh, in my 20s very young and um, and what I mean freedom is artistic freedom. The fact that people did not have to put their ideas um, in, in, a, in a kind of intermediary process where they have to think if they should or not do it and yeah. kind of censor and repress their own impulses, meaning not being themselves anymore. Yeah. Um, so when we lost it, meaning when that generation left, mm. I was looking for that everywhere. I couldn't find it. So I realized the work had to do something other than just painting images. Yes. Uh, 
sense, giving you a sense. Yeah. Well, thank you. And thank you so much for coming on the Arpsis podcast. We're going to thank talk a lot about Oh, thank you. <laughs> We're going to talk a lot about your your work coming up, but I thought we could just start with you telling us a little bit about your early life before you became an artist. What was your childhood like? Where were you based? And yeah, how how were your feelings as a child? When um, I was a kid um, of diplomats, mm-hmm. so my father was a diplomat. So very early on, around three years old, I left. Cuba to go to France and then to Lebanon mm-hmm. and where I actually spoke Arabic something really? I want to remember <laughs> yeah I was because I was going to school there yeah um, and um, and then we went to Panama and in the in-betweens we were going for vacation to Cuba and of course I had a very different image of Cuba I have the image of the upper class uh, yeah. on the class that in, in Cuba the upper class doesn't mean money it means access to power and mm-hmm. being um, faithful to power. So yeah. so I even saw Fidel when I was a kid in in a in a, a beach house, actually. He was coming out of the beach and he wow. came to visit because apparently the house where I was, there were several, you know, people from the government. Mm. And, um, yeah, and it was very bizarre because he came down to me and my father was like, yeah, she speak Arabic, she speak French. And I was like super young, like I was seven or whatever, seven or eight. And then he came down and said, you have to speak English because that's the word, that's the language of the future. And I was like totally traumatized (laughs) because by that time you were always told in the school, Mm. um, that the Americans were the bad ones and uh, yeah and Americans English so I was like something here is not correct you know I'm like <laughs> super young already um and then later uh, when my parents divorced for political discussions basically they would they, they start having disagreement politically wow. they divorced um and we went back to Cuba and then that was a big shock. I was 11 years old and I couldn't put together what I heard Cuba was, what mm-hmm. I saw in those vacations with the everyday life of the Cubans. Because then I went to a normal school yeah. with my neighbors who were not rich, yeah. you know, were not connected to the, to the power system. Mm-hmm. And that was a big, uh, I started asking questions in my family that nobody wanted to answer. Yeah. So you're quite I'd help. (laughs) (laughs) So you're quite political even from a young age. You had that kind of political sensibility of of right and wrong basically and hypocrisy. I I think I I had, but in general, now I it's not the same, but at that time in Cuba everybody was forced Mm. to be political. Even if you wanted to be apolitical, you were drawn into this political discussion that why you were a political yeah. you know so there was no escape um mm-hmm. in cuba and the reason i mean it took me a long time to understand and the reason i feel was for control because people felt unless they were related to the political project they have no other option in their life yeah but unfortunately 
um, the way they did it with uh, a big distance between propaganda and reality, forcing people was not long-term, didn't work. Yeah. 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 And as a young child, were you into the arts? Were you creative? Was art something you thought you wanted to do? It was by chance. I, because I was, of course, in all this country, in Lebanon, I was during the Israeli invasion, yeah. one of the, in the 75, I think, 77 of 78. Um, we were all these years there. So I was very much at home. And yeah. back then, um, we didn't have uh, video games or TV, stuff like that, 24-hour mm. TV. And actually, I was all day, after I came from classes, drawing. Mm. And my mother said I had a big imagination, and I show her pictures and give a story about what is in the picture and stuff. <laughs> So once we returned to Cuba, she did that, not because she thought I was going to be a great artist, <laughs> but because she needed me to have two school, one in the morning, one in the afternoon, so she could be working. Ah, uh, yeah. Worrying that I, you know what I mean? Yeah, you yeah. Know, practical reason on her side. And now at the end, she was like, no, I knew you were a good artist, but I'm like, come on, I was 10. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Yeah. So it was by chance, and I did the test, and I got in. Yeah. To do tests for that school. So I started art, studying art at 12. Okay, amazing. Yeah. And so much of your work, well, all of your work, I think, has this same thread, which is using art kind of as a tool to promote either action or social engagement at what point as you were developing your career and your practice did you start to think like oh maybe I can use art this way rather than just creating a picture to go up in a gallery for example I had an amazing professor his name is Juan Francisco Elso I was mm -hmm. lucky with my professors in Cuba and um, he's a fantastic artist and he was my drawing professor and one day he saw me like really like intensely drawing on top of everything and I was almost making the whole page black you know? <laughs> and he realized something was not right mm. <laughs> then he pulled me aside and said what's going on and I had of course the divorce of my parents was very very hard for me yeah and um and he say you know what instead of like <laughs> you know uh try to to take it with the drawing you know <laughs> uh, you can use art to process your thoughts mm. and that completely changed my life and I was 12 when he said that to me wow. that completely changed my life because then I saw art as a tool mm. and actually if you can see what I do I never do art about something I know how I feel about Mm. I always do art about things that I cannot father how, how how this is happened. Like I cannot understand how I don't yeah. know certain injustices happen or so. Like I can understand. So I use art for for this. But why? I mean, it took me a long time to develop how to do it. But yeah, that was a good uh, clue. You know, the first step to it. So what was the first the first work that you did that you thought, okay, this is like the the first, you know, the first marker of the rest of my career? Um, it was a, my thesis in, um, I was 18 years old and um, I started working with the work of Anna Mendieta. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I realized that I was metaphorically using her to talk about 
my own process of uh, loss. Yeah. With, uh, with the generation of the 80s, I talked before that they had, they were kind of forced to exile. And I wanted to understand, you know, um, why, what Cuba was, mm. what, I mean, at the time, the Cuban government decided that whoever left do not belong and or can be called Cuban anymore. Yeah. And so, they had this, uh, which they're doing now again, because we had a second, the second time, a big uh, migration of artists. Yeah. Uh, since the 80s is the, this, the biggest one, I think, bigger than the first one. And they tried to do the same strategy, which is those who left are not real Cubans. So yeah. if, you see, if you want to see real Cuban art, you have to come to Cuba. Mm. And then, of course, they, they can. I mean, there there's always people there who will be independent, who will uh, rebel and to be saying the truth to their work. But yeah. it, it, it is a national policy to do that. So at that time, I was saying, like, why if they just like I, I couldn't understand why if they just left. They yeah. cannot be my friends anymore. Like, <laughs> yeah. It makes no nothing makes sense. So I use art to try mm. to understand. And then Anna Mendieta had this idea because also the if you were Anna Mendieta, you could come back. Mm. But if you left two years ago, you couldn't come back. So it was like very strange. So so Anna Mendieta had this idea of how it is to belong to a place you're not there anymore and how yeah. to deal with that belonging. So I started thinking about transnationality and mm. and stuff like that. And that's how I got yeah. to and I stopped those work. I always work in series or various work on the same subject because mm. I stop when I understand my position yeah. or my take on it. But it takes me a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I love that though. That is that's such a great way of looking at it and also pushing yourself to do, you know, to figure out exactly what you're feeling and why. And yeah. then obviously it resonates with so many different people in the same way. And you kind of touched upon this already, but you've obviously, as a result of your work, faced a huge amount of oppression from the Cuban authorities. I wanted to touch upon the first time you were ever censored, I think, which was when you'd started your first independent press, a newspaper called Memoria de la Posguerra. Posguerra? Yeah. That's correct. In 93. So I'm celebrating my will it be 30 years wow so i want to get people that says i've been 30 years censor celebrating my 30 years censor (laughs) for censorship yes it's just unbelievable and the story is pretty unbelievable as well because your father was a diplomat at the time could you just tell us a little bit about that first experience and also how that shaped the rest of the work that you would go on to do yeah, I think it was a combination of uh, my mother was great because she always um, um, raised me with a free mind. Um, yeah. And she always respected. She was a little distant herself a little bit yeah. because she was always saying, like, if I believe in something, you have to do it. Like, don't, you know. So I thank to her. And um, so basically, it was a very innocent thing, to be honest. Mm-hmm. I wanted to make an homage to the artists of the 80s who left. And I realized that one one uh, common factor is like there was very little to remember those people by because there was nothing left, like no no catalogs, no news, newspaper, no magazines done by them or about them. 
Yeah. So I decided to do a newspaper because it was easy to print or stuff like that. And also the idea of the news changing every day and every yeah. day we had different people living, whatever. So I was like, I want to do an homage to them. So I decided to to do a newspaper. It was an artwork. It wasn't a newspaper. It was an artwork in the format of the newspaper. Mm. And um, I invited a lot of people to collaborate, etc. But the thing is, the newspaper starts circulating as newspaper. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then the people were reading it and mm -hmm. looking for it and stuff like that. So immediately they call me um, and they say, you cannot do this. There are three lawsuits. It's 15 years in jail, blah, blah, blah. So they tried to scare me. And then mm. I run immediately because at the same time they were doing that to me and having my first my first um, interrogation with the um, with the council of the art director arts mm -hmm. council director. Um, at the same time, the second issue was getting printed <laughs> because I was like, oh, I like this. <laughs> I want to do this and I actually want to do it for real and I want to mm -hmm. do it forever and do one issue a month or whatever. You know, of course, this is when reality hits you. Yeah. And uh, and then I, I did the second one. Mm -hmm. I, I, I released the second one. But then this is when my father came and, and he asked me to give him all the all the copies. But I had already distributed in friend's house because yeah. I knew not by the second one. I knew I was doing something quote unquote wrong. Yeah. Know? Yeah. <laughs> so I was asking like, OK, let me have people. So, yeah. And then he brought me to to my first interrogation with the with the people of the secret police and that was something very hard very hard for mm. me and um at the same time it's funny because uh, it took me like 20 years to I, I think I repressed that in a way yeah and it took me 30 years or 20 years to to remember that mm. And then I told a friend of mine, he said, oh, yeah, I have another daughter of somebody in the high government who was the same. And so it, it is apparently a practice that yeah. in Cuba, your family um, mm. has to bring you to the secret police. So it's not an exception. Yeah. It must have been really hard for you, though, to have that with your with your father, you know, bringing it you. It made me not trust people very yeah. much for a long time. Yeah. Because that was, uh, I mean, thank God I had my mom that is completely the opposite. And actually, yeah. they had a huge fight because of it. Really? They had a huge fight because of it. Because <laughs> also bet. my father wanted me to continue going to those shifts and, sorry, yeah. to those meetings. Oh, no, sw swear and, uh, and that's the reason I left the country. I, I yeah. left desperate because at that time, one thing that was different is in the 80s, mm. Uh, it was such a good ambience because then I knew more. No, I researched that time because everybody talked about the secret police going to see them at their house, and mm -hmm. it was awesome because then you know what they were talking. If they interrogated the other guy, they knew what they were saying. But yeah. when those people left, the new generation was raised very different. Like they don't say anything. Yeah, and everybody was meeting with the secret police, which I didn't know until much later. But nobody yeah. told each other. So it was not cool. Yeah. It was not cool, you know? So I felt really bad. And I'm like, I don't want to do this. Mm. And my mother was very clear. She's like, if you do this, it's forever. Like the people who do that cannot leave. And yeah. I was like super scared. And I'm like, and then I got a 
uh, traveled to the U.S. Mm -hmm. because they had this exchange program uh, where five of five artists went to the U.S. and I immediately applied for a master degrees and I stayed <laughs> for my master degrees and I disappeared kind of, you know, so mm -hmm. I was not useful. Yeah. Uh, then because they wanted to know what people were talking. Yeah. I mean, it's like, yeah, it's, um, that's why I feel so much. And that's what I open Instar, like, yeah, later on, because I feel like people need to know how this is the way they operate. So we yeah. know ways in which we can respond that mm. don't have to be left, leave your house or your life, you know? Yeah, and tell us a little bit about Insta because it stands for the Hannah Arendt Institute of Artivism, and I'm going to quote you because I love oh, no. this. <laughs> well, I'm going to quote the website. Sorry. Um, okay, better. <laughs> um, because it's about this combination of art and activism, but I think it says it in a really great way, um, which is that artivism assumes that art has a social responsibility to its context, and that artivism is not limited to repeating the same slogans or tactics, rather proposing creative or novel options. And I love that because I think it's, I think maybe people say that, you know, they're artivists if they just express their political views. But what I love about what you do is that you always, you're always suggesting something or challenging people to think beyond what they already know. So tell us a bit about starting Instar and, and really what it's about and what, what you do. Well, Instar, believe it or not, is in a way um, exists thanks to a to an interrogation session, because in 2015 I did this uh, when Obama and Raúl uh, were, you know, approaching, and mm -hmm. it was now said in Cuba that to be friends with the U.S. it was okay. Well, before yeah. all these people had to pay for uh, having conversation with their families who live in the U.S. and so on. Uh, so I did this performance where I proposed to put a microphone in the Revolution Square so all the people can say the way they see their vision of the country in 10, 15 years or whatever. And then that cost me, it was very pricey, that part work, because yeah. I was detained. 87 people were detained that day. Yeah. Uh, so thank God they, they were liberated. But then I remember in one, the title of the piece is uh, Tattling Whisper. Mm -hmm. based on Vladimir Tatling, uh, a constructivist from uh, Soviet, constructivist, I guess. And yeah. I remember one of the interrogation, the interrogator, who is not precisely very smart, um, she was um, quoting from the Wikipedia who Vladimir Tatling was, mm. by verbatim, you know, by heart. And I was like, oh, so maybe if I do artwork, that they don't know what it is they can study about it and then they can learn <laughs> and then then it's you know what I mean so I was like, yeah so yeah I think I did a few performances in my interrogations as well but those might be private for them <laughs> um, and then I went back and decided to read the Hannah Arendt uh, mm -hmm. book of the origin of totalitarianism for 100 hours non-stop and my idea was like, oh, if I use that book, she has to read who Hannah Arendt is and what she does. <laughs> and that. So that way, you know, she's educated. Or yeah. Somehow. So, yeah, they came and they didn't. Well, it was a whole story. But but then I realized 
and yes, in the next interrogation, she asked me about Hannah Arendt and, and it was all about what totalitarianism is. So it was, wow. it was great. Um, and then, uh, then I said, yeah, but change cannot be just an event. You can change society with one event. You have to be persistent. You have to work on 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 the timeline of things. You cannot do one action and pretend things are changing. Yeah. Because then she went back to the normal interrogations. And so so then I wanted to create the Institute, Institute of mm. Art. And, originally it was Institute of Art and Activism. It's, no, it was like... International Institute of Art and Activism, Hannah Arendt, but it was so long. <laughs> so long. But I said, take out the international and say mm. art and activism together. And uh, yeah. Mm. So so I think it's wonderful because we have been, um, the, the Institute is very flexible mm -hmm. because we adapt to the needs of, of Cuba in that sense and of the, the way in which activism has progress in Cuba. And I think, yeah. I feel very, very pleased that from our courses or our events, um, some, quite a bit of young artists um, were a little more conscious about yeah. being activist and, and how to do it and, and mm. have some tools. It's amazing. And it is, you know, it's that thing of, as you were saying about the the one tutor you had at art school that made you just think a slightly different way. And we never know quite what impact we're going to have because it can it can really change people in the long term. Um, so it's it's and really also, amazing. We had uh, two years ago a challenge in Instar because we always work in Cuba, and at the beginning we brought some artists who were very politically active or mm. activists themselves. So they were teaching, um, they were all over the world, you know, like Europe, Eastern Europe. I, I like to talk a lot with Eastern European yeah. uh, ones because, believe it or not, people don't make that assumption, but Cuba has a lot to do with that region. Yeah. Uh, and we pass through not the same, but similar uh, processes. Yeah. And then two years ago, for the first time, we have to think, what internationally could INSTAR do? Because mm -hmm. uh, we were invited to Documenta, yeah, and uh, which is a big, big, but well, the biggest uh, art exhibition in the world. And then we used the yeah. opportunity to to show artists that will never, on their own opportunity, will have the opportunity to be picked by these famous, you know, international yeah. curators because they never go to see them in Cuba and mm. because they're censored if they go to Cuba they go through the official channels so they never yeah. encounter the work so we used the opportunity to show like around a hundred artists nobody you know yeah That's censored amazing. over time and yeah hi I'm Hossam Fazola co-founder of Bosla Arts did you know we just launched our third issue of our magazine? This issue is called The Brink, featuring the work from seven artists from Ukraine who examine how their work has changed since the full-blown invasion last year. Find out more and order your copy today at boslaarts.com B-O-S-L-A-A-R-T-S dot com Back to the podcast.
hearing you talk about the the work that you do and I think you know that story when you're you're re reading the the oranges of totalitarianism on a speaker I don't know if you mentioned it but I think the authorities sent people to do like roadworks which is just it's <laughs> you can't help but laugh at the the levels people will go to literally silence you it's it's insane <laughs> but, but it speaks about something I wanted to talk to you about which is like this relationship between you the audience and then also a third which is the the power like the either mm. political power the power of the institution anything you know you have this kind of three-way relationship and even you know as you're being interrogated and you're trying to teach your interrogator about this book there's always this kind of interplay between the three so I just wanted to ask you yeah what is what is that relationship for you between the three your audience the power and your work I always say that the for me one strategy is to delay as much as possible the understanding that what I'm doing is art mm. because I feel the time in which people are not sure something is art they are freer and more open to interpret what they see in many different ways and yeah. even absorb better what you're trying to tell them through the artwork because they don't feel inadequate inadequate because they oh I don't know nothing about art mm -hmm. or I don't understand our history so I think this is something I really try to use a lot in my work and also because I feel power the time it takes them to figure it out how to respond is the only time you have as an artist that works with activism to do what you want to do as soon as they yeah. know how to respond you 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 don't have because then they put you in these boxes where you are this you are that and all their montage of about yeah. you so so in that sense for me i mean as an artist i always been very interested in in the form like trying to do something that is new different um mm. that expands because when i learn about performance i liked it that like you could expand so easily the line of what art is but then as an activist I found that a tool like a very useful tool because yeah. sometimes people don't and and it's not only not me only because I went to Chile recently and I was researching even more about for example Cada the collective group in during the dictatorship of Pinochet and they did a lot of performances in the street and events that mm -hmm. It took them, for example, they had one performance about some trucks, milk trucks that were going around the city. That the only thing that was bizarre is like there were too many after the other, like it was a line mm. of them. So that was kind of a strange for people, but mm. it was so, okay, what is this? So it was hard for the government maybe to stop at the moment yeah. versus some of other actions they did where they were putting the, you know, the no plus, no, no more sign mm -hmm. that they were putting and then running because it's something they quickly people know what it is yeah and they pick it out so I think this uh understanding the timing of work also yes how the work respond to a very specific political timing yeah and by timing in art I mean when people have not decided what something is mm. you know let's say 
there is a historical success and people are still debating, is this good, is this bad? Is a person, mm. people say no, say yes. Now everybody knows that World War II was horrible. Everybody agrees that, you know, people who were killed by Nazis, but also by Stalin. So all of this had been, now everybody knows. But while things yeah. are happening, you have this time where you have to figure things out. And yeah. this is where art, I think art can be very useful to, mm. to, to think because still people have not made an opinion, a complete opinion mm. of things. It's it's so interesting. And I think you, would you call yourself part of the art? Is it art util, like useful art movement? Yeah, totally. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> mm. yeah, no, for me, this is super important. I created this, it's funny because only a few years ago, I realized that I've been doing a long-term performance, I say, which is creating these concepts. Because mm. when I was studying in the, the Art Institute, my MFA, I also mm. had problem. I mean, I, I don't always, it's not only against the human government. I mean, there, there are ways that we have to fight everywhere. You know, there are things yeah. we have to fight everywhere. And, you know, and even in the art world, the art world is full of injustices. Yes. And now I feel that there is a little bit of correction, mm. historical correction, but you know, we'll see if that is going to be permanent or it's a temporary guilty trip. Some people have. <laughs> <Yeah>. Hopefully <laughs> it's permanent. Hopefully. Um, hopefully. But but yeah, and I created Arteuti the concept in 2003, and it was also because I realized that, you know, my practice was leading me to, to yeah, I don't want to just represent something. I want the thing to do something to people. Yeah, yeah. And I want is to lead to real change, mm. because um, I saw in Cuba that art can really change things. You know, sometimes. Yeah worse unfortunately but (laughs) but uh, it can really make social change so Mm -hmm. I wanted to understand and I came with the idea of Arte Util just as a let's say provocation to Mm -hmm. bring to the art world about uh, for how long are we going to do things that are not quote-unquote useful yeah uh, or are only contemplative but but, uh, I never said that the non-useful art is bad and this mm-hmm. is good. I never yeah. defined that way. I don't. I don't think in those categories. But um, but it was a provocation just to bring the conversation to a larger group of people about yeah. what do we do with art? Like, are mm-hmm. we going to only reproduce photos of, uh, you know, like like the Andy Warhol Mao? Mm-hmm. That's what we're doing, or yeah. are we going to actually try to do something like I don't know? Like Wally Rad does, mm. he's a Lebanese artist who yeah. who actually does performances, lectures, performative mm. lectures where you learn so much, you know. Yeah. Um, and they're still beautiful and poetic and amazing art. Mm. So, um, so, so yeah, it was more about not making either or, but just saying mm. like, also we are also here, and we this is yeah. also an option. Yeah. No, absolutely. And actually, based on what you just said, I was I was wondering what your relationship to the art world and to art institutions has been, because you've obviously done a lot. You've worked with some of the biggest, you know, art institutions around the world, and you're highly respected. But how has it been, especially when you have that activism thread of your work? 
I'll tell you one secret since we're not talking together. <laughs> I'll tell you one secret. My relationship with this institution is complex uh, because it's a love-hate one. Yeah. Because I believe in institutions as um, a way to have a stable democracy. Mm. And I think institutional memory is important. I, I feel that knowing where to go when you don't know about something is important and so on now <laughs> our institutions <laughs> unfortunately in places like cuba and and completely auto autocratic and totalitarian regimes are taken over by governments and regulated by governments and 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 people i understand people have to leave people you know, and people, you know, have a different way of seeing things or whatever, but but they they actually mm, yeah, sometimes I feel they should be rethought and, and recalibrate. Yeah. But also in capitalist places sometimes it's another thing where where institutions are taken over by economic power. Yeah. And um the other one is taken over by, I mean, in, in, in places like Cuba, is taken over by, by political power or mm. Venezuela or Nicaragua being a place where you can only advance if you um, are in the same political uh, or pretend to be in the mm -hmm. same political thing. And and the, the capitalism is taken over by economic power because either, and there are also censorship. There is also censorship. Yeah. There is censorship. Yeah. For example, there are certain issues people should not talk about, certain big companies that should not be criticized. For example, the art world should not be talked about in this institution, like criticizing to the art world is not allowed to this in this institution. And, and, and that is also very frustrating. It's yeah. frustrating because I don't understand what the fear is, you know? I mean, the fear is, of course, not to have any more money or, so, you know, or funds. But yeah. but it is really um, damaging that what the artists can produce because a lot of artists are afraid, you know? Now, yeah. again, we're in a nice moment where a lot of uh, freedom is back to talk about gender, about race, about things that are not not heteronormative or, mm -hmm. or you know class but still for example class issues are very hard to talk about still yeah for example or the involvement of institutions with, with dirty money you know mm -hmm. so all of these things are something that maybe one or two artists bring up and but it's hard to sustain as a converse long-term conversation yes so yeah. so yeah the, and at the same time i tell you this is in general but at the same time i'll tell you in my personal experience i feel like some of my best work has been done uh with small institutions people who have the freedom to experiment and to and to do things that you know less pressure less people looking and waiting for something specific but at the same time, I am obliged to participate and to be part of big events. 
I'm obliged to be yeah. part of Documenta, I'm obliged to be part of MoMA, Tate, Guggenheim, etc. For the sole reason, ironically, that the Cuban government only respects artists who are gone through these big institutions because mm. the Cuban government is a very reactionary government in the sense that they only recognize institution and big institution as yeah. the truthful institutions, as the one that held holds the truth or maybe the money, which they are realized later mm -hmm. this is all they are after. After all this ideology at the end, what they want. <laughs> um and and I confess sometimes I didn't want to be part of certain shows but I had to say yes mm -hmm. because I know that if I had a show in this or that museum or, or they will be like it will be harder for them to destroy my image yes. in front of young artists yes. and also uh, or in front of people in general and also in a way it puts them in a weird situation where they they can reject me completely because, you know. Yeah. But at the same time, I also feel that, and this is only me having, nobody told me this, but I have this thought, that I feel that because the goal of the Cuban government is to make anyone who dares to do political art fail miserable in life mm. and career, I also feel that it's my duty to be as yeah. successful as possible not because I care, but as a way to tell younger people, you if I did it, you, you can do it. Yes, yes. Because this is something I heard at ISA when I was teaching there, another professor saying like, don't do this kind of political art because look what happened with the people of the 80s who left and now they're poor and nobody wants to buy their art and you have to be commercial. So I want to show the young people in Cuba that and also maybe in other places but especially for the young artists in Cuba that there is another way you mm -hmm. might not be a millionaire you might not have seven houses or, or three cars but you don't need to either but you can live honestly and have your work appreciated and mm -hmm. and and be able to help others or to or to you know bring others into that uh, successful life, you know? Successful in the sense of people recognizing your efforts, people recognizing your your projects. Yeah, I think that's no, absolutely. very important because that's the line. The official line is in Cuba is don't do political art, don't get into anything political. You're going to get in prison here and nobody wants mm. to, you know what I mean? They, they isolate yeah. you, they have... Because the thing in Cuba is not that they are against or in favor of what you do. It's a matter of creating a system that do not allow people even there to mm. think about protest or do something that question the power. Yes. So that's what we have been. I mean, me and other artists in Cuba activists, I've been trying to, to break, no? Yeah, 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 absolutely. It's really, really beautifully put. And I have to say that just so I don't look crazy, I have to say that this idea of not succeeding is something that we have documented. Like we have documented cases in which, for example, independent filmmakers had show, uh, been asked to show their work in, in film festivals in the world and the 
um, film industry center in Cuba, the official one, like they or people from the Ministry of Culture contact the people in charge of the festival mm. to take out that artist project if they want to go back to the film festival in Cuba, if they want to be part of. So there is mm. we have multiple examples in my case. I had the, the head of the National Museum of Cuba going to Germany. And these are things that nobody thinks about. People yeah. think Cuba government is poor. They don't have mm. any incidents. No, they have a lot of influence. And if and they have the money for that. They don't have the money for food. They don't have the yeah. money for... But they have the money to send somebody to another country mm. to talk to someone so they don't do an exhibition or put a film. Yeah. So in my case, I had that, like the National Museum uh, director who we know is part of the secret police. He came because, you know, he has a legit, quote unquote, uh, position to Germany to talk to the director of the museum where they were going to do a solo show of mine, wow. you know, to to take it out, to to not do this and do another show that he was proposing. I think it's so important to talk about it. I was... In a previous uh, interview, we interviewed a Chinese dissident artist called Baritzao, and he was saying the same thing. He's lived in Australia in exile for many years, and every time he has an exhibition in Europe, they get... Uh, one case was in Italy. They The director of the, the gallery had plainclothes people coming to her and threatening her just because mm -hmm. of his participation. And I feel like the more you say it, the more you come out with it publicly. Also, the more you you feel like you have a community of people who've been through it. Because for someone who is not, you know, who's not within coming from that sphere of, you know, being a distant artist, or whatever, it's also must be very scary. So that having some backing, I think, is really important. That transparency. And also, you cannot ask anybody to take that for you. Yeah, I, mean, I don't get ethical position to tell the director of a museum. You should defend. No, they should do whatever they think they can do, or they yeah. think is possible. But, but it's insane. They have sometimes calls from the embassies. Sometimes they have these uh, people going there, like mm. nice way, like cultural people, and so on. But I have to say that for Cubans, it's very hard mm. because everybody agrees about China, everybody agrees about Iran, Russia. Yeah. One, why? Because these are the big uh, enemies, quote mm. unquote, of the United States. Yeah. Economic enemies or ideological enemies or military enemies and so on. Yeah. So it's very easy to have track when you talk about a Chinese dissident or, or Russian residents. But with Cuba, it's always tough because mm. there is this image of Cuba as a good weather place and that doesn't mean we have a good government place yeah so it is very hard for us to tell our truth uh for example i'm friends with one person from black Lives matter one of the original person who who created that and we had a conversation because there is a big discrimination in cuba the the black activists are in jail the white yeah. activists were expelled so and they we don't get track. We nobody yeah. talks along us mm. about these things that happen in Cuba. So it is actually double hard. Yeah. For the 
activists because the government is very smart. They bring you to the brink of your insanity. Mm. They bring you to the brink of your of your misery. Yeah. Uh, making your family, you know, like pressure everybody around you. and all, But they don't kill you. And because mm. they don't kill you, people think things are great in Cuba. Yeah. And obviously you've gone through so much at the hands of the Cuban authorities. You've been yeah. censored, interrogated, put under house arrest. And I think you're, I believe you're now living in exile outside of Cuba in America. Forced, forced exile. You forced exile. And as you mentioned before, there are still so many artists either forced to exile or in prison at the moment. How has, it sounds like an obvious question, but how have you found having to live in forced exile and how has it shaped your your artwork as well and your the way you see your work it has been very strange because i as a kid i live in and out as mm. a grown-up when i was 28 i started going you know out for studying in and out mm. and i always had this very maybe comfortable way in which i could see things inside then be a way to mm. think clearly about stuff and then go back and do an action mm. that I don't have anymore yeah so so it's very difficult when it's very it's a strange when you know you cannot go back yeah you know that you know for sure mm. because uh, yeah it's a very different process thinking and um and I I think one of the reasons they do that is you cannot update your data, your mm. emotional data about mm. the political situation. And then you start having a more you know practical information instead of emotional. And I feel so much, so much that inform an activist is the emotional data. Yeah. I understand why they exile you because they want this distance to grow and grow and grow. Yeah. But at some point they can say you have no right to say anything because you haven't been here for X yeah. time. So you don't know how people feel. So it's it's very difficult. And for other of my friends as well, also because um, many people had to stop doing activism yeah. because they had to understand. For some people, first time they leave Cuba, they didn't know yeah. about other lives in other places. So So it is also strategy for the government to gain time because yes. I had to figure out where to live mm. you know how to find a job or so many had to stop yeah but the good news the good news is now for each activist that leaves there is three four five in the country that starts yeah so this time I don't think it worked because we are not there to do the job all the people have to do the job which I think is fantastic and in a way I think artists are not so needed anymore in Cuba because now all Cubans are mm. activists like yeah the people itself are activists and and they are doing what we we started in a way and at the same time some people who left uh, who had already something you know like Cuba Legs or Justicia Oncejota who already have organized themselves in groups uh, or in kind of uh, organizations that now are legalized they had the chance they didn't have while they were in Cuba which is going to the international arena 
yes. to the UN, to, to the peace forums, to all of this, to ask people to listen to what happened yeah. right now. So the, I think the pressure yeah. is bigger. There are more people outside who just left, who have a story to tell. Mm. And um, so I don't think it's, it's working so well for them. <laughs> Well, that's a good note to kind of leave it on. <laughs> I I guess also just my final thing on that, what you said is also everyone is so connected now. So you can be, even if you, you're forced to leave and you end up in a different place to someone else that you, you know, worked with or, you know, an activist with, now you can actually connect and stay very much on the same level because you we have it like unbelievable. For better or worse, you can you can remain tight with them. Mm. Um Tanya, I've taken so much of your time. So I have one last question, but uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, it's just about, you've just opened a new exhibition in Chile. Yes. And so it's called Magnitude 11.9. Um, can you tell us a little bit about it? And if you can, yeah. the kind of challenges yeah, yeah. you've had. So in 2018, I was invited to do something in Chile. Then uh, two years ago, the Museum of Solidaridad Salvador Allende decided to take the show and I was very proud because I was like, wow, this is, I like Salvador Allende and all his project. He was the first uh, democratically elected uh, left-wing uh, project in the Latin America. So yeah, everything went well. And then uh, we were informed that the show was going to be held during the around the 50th anniversary or, or commemoration of the coup d'etat by Pinochet. So then I decided to change the gears of the show because some generic survey mm -hmm. show about my work would not, I mean, would be not related. So um, as soon as that was. Um, announced the grand dot, the grandson of Allende uh, decided that it was offensive. To be honest, the first person who started is called the the Che of the gays. Mm He's -hmm. a guy who who is very close to Mariela Castro, uh, the daughter of Raul mm -hmm. Castro. And then well he did something, but he followed him because mm -hmm. he's a little not very respected person. Yeah. And then the grandson of uh, of Allende step in, and then a politician from the Communist Party step in. Mm. Uh, it was very interesting because I think they did the project because then I incorporate mm. all of that into the exhibition, and the exhibition keeps growing. One section of the one uh, room of the exhibition mm. is about that, so every day they put the new things that come up. So I want to show that. And, uh, but the thing that is interesting is that they didn't know what the show was about. That they know, nobody asked me what I think about Allende. Mm. Nobody asked me uh, what I think about Pinochet. Nobody asked me about my thoughts. They were actually repeating what the Cuban government say in the montages they have on TV. And they were saying that I was a Miami Cuban. I don't live in Miami, so I'm. Mm. I get pissed off when somebody tells me something about myself that is not even true. I mean, at least yeah. do a little research. <laughs> like, like, <laughs> yeah. If you want to offend me, that's fine. You're right, mm. but at least get informed. You know. Yeah. So I think that what is interesting is that they're able to 
shoot their foot, yeah. you say? Shoot themselves in the foot. Shoot themselves in the foot uh, because they just don't want yeah. me, you know. Chile is a very sophisticated place where people have gone through a lot and they were able to reconstruct democracy after a horrible mm. dictatorship. And it was a painful process. They had to agree with things that are very hard to say yes in order to be democratic again. So it's a very complex political, but people are very educated politically. Yeah. And that that was something I was very happy to found, find. For me, it was sad and interesting to see how much influence still the Cuban government has in certain political sectors in Chile. It's, it was a good point of conversation for people because they were thinking... You know, they were surprised. A lot of people were embarrassed, I have to say. Yeah. That this was happening. Because, yeah. but it also put it a test democracy. In a way, I say, you can put, you can protest. I have nothing against that. I wish I could do that in my country and not go to prison. Mm. Uh, you can do whatever you want. If it doesn't involve aggression to the people in the museum, because there yeah. is a limit. Uh, but I think it was interesting. It's I still, it's still. I mean, it's funny because the day of the opening, only five people came to to protest. So we were waiting a big, uh, yeah. But yeah, I wish one day in Cuba we could do that without being afraid to be in prison. Yeah, I'm so sorry. Yeah. It's... No, it's. I think it's fine. It actually worked for the exhibition. Yeah. It became a piece about that, so yeah, perfect. Very true. We'd like to thank Tanya for joining us for this week's episode. If you'd like to find out more about her work, please check the description for links. And thank you for joining us for another episode of the Arpsis podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, why not go back and listen to some other amazing art activists, including Jalili Atiku, Casey Wong, The Fearless Collective, and so many more. And if you're enjoying the podcast, we ask you to please go and leave a review for us, rate it, share it online, as only with your help can these really important stories be heard. Thanks for listening and see you next week.